Good morning and welcome to the Home Church Sunday morning Bible study video. This week we'll be in Joshua chapters 20 and 21 and we'll go ahead and jump in together um, because these are some dense chapters. Before we do, I would implore you to pause this video and go read these chapters. Uh, chapter 20 is really short, I think it's about 10, 10 verses, uh, and then 21 is a little bit longer, um, but you can kind of speed read it because it's a lot of naming people. It's kind of a landmine central for mispronouncing names in Scripture. It's kind of a nightmare to read aloud in a group of people, so feel free to read it on your own, in your head, and take a guess at how you might pronounce some of these names. But we'll get into why both of these chapters are so important, but pause and read them first and think about what you might glean from them. And then we might be able to see even the further possibilities of opening up Scripture together and what else the Lord might add to what we've read already. So I implore you to do that now. And after you've done that, I want to read just a, a section of 20 for us today and then later on a section of chapter 21. But I'll read this. This is an instance uh, where the Lord speaks to Joseph and tells him to set up an embassy of God's justice. It says here in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town which they fled. The verses to follow in chapter 20 are the cities in which these cities of refuge will be dispersed. And if you want to read that, I think it's a great idea. Maybe you could pull up a map of where these things are, but they're strategically placed cities of refuge. There are three on either side of the Jordan, one to the north, one to the east or west, and then one to the south, so that no matter where you are in Israel, if you need to flee to one of these cities of refuge, God's justice, these places, are nearby. They are accessible. So let's break down what we just read. Uh, we call it in our society manslaughter, accidental murder of someone. You've probably heard of vehicular manslaughter where you accidentally, without malicious intent or without premeditated murder, uh, you would accidentally hit someone with your car and that person, as a result, would die. And so the sentencing that you would find in the court of justice uh, it'd be very different than first-degree premeditated murder. Those are different crimes because one is intentional and one is not. In the same way, this justice system we have now is founded upon some of the things you might find in Joshua. So the big picture idea here is, and I think it's important that we break these things down because this is what Scripture is showing us, is that God is just, but He is also 
merciful, that there is penalty, but there is also protection. So let's break this down. Someone uh, and their buddy go off into the forest and they're swinging an axe and accidentally the axe head falls off and it strikes the other person. This is an accident, but as a result, the person who's struck by the axe head passes away. This is a common uh, analogy that is found in scripture or in commentaries. This is kind of the, the baseline idea of what an accidental death might look like because people go into the woods and chop down trees all the time together in the Old Testament, apparently. But there is a blood avenger in that family. So the person whose family member was killed, the next of kin is now in charge of making sure the payment for that blood is paid. The only thing that can defile the earth is blood. And the only thing that can atone for that defilement is blood. Blood from the person who spilled the original blood. So the next of kin for the one who was murdered must go and find the one who murdered their kin and then take care of that person in the same way so that the blood and the earth might both be reconciled. And this seems kind of Old Testament. It seems a little detached from us, but essentially someone is guilty and because it is blood, it is a person, it's a sacred life that God has created, there is an equal payment for such a thing. But this is not necessarily the case here where there was a murder, it was intentional, and there's an obvious way to reconcile this terrible injustice that has happened. Instead, it's an accident. So the blood avenger, the next of kin that would normally find the person responsible and take care of them in the same way is told instead to stop. Don't do it. And they're told in this scripture that the person who has committed the accidental crime, the one who's committed manslaughter, is to flee, to go to one of these cities of refuge, to get out, go to a city that is labeled here in chapter 20 and plead your case to the elders of that city and the elders will let you in. You are now protected by God's justice and his mercy inside the walls of this new city. And if the person who is next of kin, who is looking for vengeance, wants uh, the repayment of this terrible thing that's happened, they come looking for that person. The elders of the city say, hey, wait, this is a city of refuge. The person is innocent. We're going to hold them accountable. They'll be before a congregation and there will be a trial. But until then, you cannot enter the city and we will not release this person to you. So it's this weird tension where there is justice that needs to be paid. Someone's life has been taken. But at the same time, God does not want tragedy added to injustice. Someone's life was unfairly and unintentionally taken. That doesn't mean that the price then is someone else's life to be intentionally taken. This kind of twists justice. So God has created this way that justice can be served, but at the same time, mercy is shown. So this person that is fleeing to the new city, the one who is guilty of the unintentional crime, has found protection in the new city. But also there is a penalty for them because life is sacred to the Lord. It is, it is different than any other crime that they must be exiled from their home. They must go off to this far place and live in this city and wait to return. 
And even if they are found not guilty in this court, in this appeal, it doesn't mean that they can immediately go home because, as we discussed earlier, blood is the only thing that can repay and reconcile bloodshed. So you're thinking, Lord, how are you going to make this right if blood has been shed, but you're not allowing me to shed the blood of the person who is guilty for the unintentional crime? What do we do here? And we see in these later verses that this person must stay in this far off city until the high priest of that time comes to their natural demise. Someone does still die. It's the high priest's blood that covers the blood of the original sin. So in all of these logistical things that as you read this might get bored with, it is God perfectly performing His accessible justice and His mercy. How incredible is it that the Lord requires that blood must be paid for, but also allows the person who is not a murderer at heart to, re to be released from a murderer's death. God has thought all of these things through. The person who's committed this crime, they can easily access God's justice and mercy from a nearby city that are all strategically placed. The person who is the blood avenger that is supposed to go and find the person who did this and take care of it, they are saved from further twisting justice because they're not allowed to take care of things the way that they normally would. The person is saved in a city of refuge. So that person in some way is saved from committing a further crime. And then the high priest, who is arguably the best one of them all, when he dies, his blood atones for this person and the exile can come home. I'll leave it up to you to find out how that falls into our story and our narrative in Scripture as God in Christ is our high priest. His blood atones for our sacrifice and that you and I are under God's protection, but also feel as though we are exiled in this foreign land because of the things that we're guilty for. Um, so please discuss that in your group this morning about how this directly translates to you. But at the end of chapter 20, I also want to say this. This is not just for the Israelites. This is one of those things, those glimpses in Scripture, where we see that God's mercy and justice is not just for a small group of people. It says that any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. This is verse 9 in chapter 20. So this beautiful, strategic way of God's mercy and justice being whooshed together is not just for Israelites, it is for the sojourners, the aliens, those who are not a part of God's promise also get to be in this circle of God's justice, judgment, and mercy. So this is good news for us because we are those sojourners, we are those Gentiles that Christ will ultimately bring into the fold. So there's so much in chapter 20. And if you read through chapter 21, there's also a lot to unpack there because 
This is a moment where the Levites, the people who are in charge of keeping the temple, and they're also dis descendants of Levi. You can find his name in the older, even older sections of Scripture. Um, his family was promised something. Moses was told by God that one day the Levite family and all the descendants after uh, would then be given specific plots of land that are a certain size to a certain number of people, and these certain families would get these things. And this was promised to Moses long before Joshua. And you find in, verse, or in chapter 20, it says this in the first few verses, Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the order tribal families of Israel, at Shiloh in Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us the towns to live in, with pasture lands and our livestock. So, as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. And then 4, verse 4 through about 40, is a list of all the families and all the things that they're supposed to get, the livestock, the pasture lands, the towns that are divided among them. And this can seem like a very monotonous read, that it's a little boring. I don't know these families personally. I don't know what this means. And I think that if you did a deeper dive, you could find that there is so much sustenance in every name that is said. But the big picture of what I see here is that God has not forgotten that he said a long time to Moses, I want to give the Levites and all of the descendants that carry that name these specific things. And years and years and generations have passed. And now, with authority and the promise of God in their hands, the Levites walk up to Joshua and Eleazar and say, Hey, it's not because we're naggy. It's not because we want what is owed to us. But God has promised us something and we want with God's authority to say, we want what God has promised. In the same way, in our lives, God has promised us things, and as though we might be timid to ask for them, let this be a lesson to us that if we're promised something by God, we should go before Him and ask for it, because in a way, we are using God's own words. When you ask for forgiveness from God, it is not because you're naggy and you don't want to leave him alone or because you just want things from him. No, instead, God has said, come to me. If you ask for forgiveness, I'm just and faithful to always give it. So with these promises and one like this, the, the Levites walk up to those who are in charge and say, God has promised us something. And if God has said it to be true, then we will ask it to be true. And Joshua and the other leaders say, God has promised it. It is yours. And then we see this huge dividing of all the land of Israel to the family of the Levites. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Because as we read this, these names can pass us by. This seems like a landmine of, of names we would mispronounce. Don't ever try and read Joshua 21 in a group of people in a Sunday morning Bible study aloud because it is just riddled with names that I would mispronounce. But I want you instead to read through it and think in your minds, what if I was sitting there and after years and years and generations and generations, my family's name was called? 
I'm sitting there and I have no land, which means a lot in the Old Testament, to me or my family's name. And instead I gather in this assembly and someone says, and to the Sanderlands, this plot of land that was promised years ago, it is yours. And to the Smiths, we have not forgotten you, this is yours. And to the so-and-sos, and to this family, these names, these people, this land, these promises matter. They matter to God. They matter to these families and the fact that the Lord has not forgotten them and come through on every last line item detail of his promise is a picture of who God is. We can bank on his promises. And I'll end us with this uh, beautiful way that Joshua 21 has ended. It says in verse 43 to 45, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. Furthermore, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. You see kind of a, a theme here. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. And I want to end on this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God that this is true. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Not one. Every one of them was fulfilled. Our God is a God who limits himself by promising us things. When he promises us something, he now must be held accountable for this process, for this promise. And it is because he loves us. When you love someone, you want to promise them things. God loves us and he promises us things and none of them, not one, is an empty promise. Every one of them was fulfilled not a single one has failed. Let us rest in that this morning. Let us live in joy and salvation and freedom of that this morning. Praise be to God for this is true. Amen.